Okay, so we'll just take a second just to drop into our bodies. There's been a lot of information and sort of intellectualization of this. Just take a moment just to be in your body. Just drop all the information for now. Take a few deep breaths. Just connect with your feet touching the earth below. And just let your body rest, just coming into some calmness in the body. When that calmness starts to present itself, we're now going to use shamatha, which is another preliminary. Just our ability to be present in this moment, our ability to be non-distracted so we can actually meditate. So here we bring our awareness to this moment. We're going to engage the practice with as much focus, effort, and concentration we can muster up right now. Just letting my words just evoke a contemplation for you, an introspection into each of these. And at any point, if you're able to arouse a certain emotional experience, towards the analytical process, just rest in that emotion. You don't have to continue the analytical process. Just rest in that emotion and come back to the analysis. So first, so based on an understanding of the entire Buddhist worldview of beginningless time, we can at least form a, a working hypothesis. And then, yes, this is based in a belief, but also it's based in a logical inference that we've had previous rebirths as one reasoning is we can trace the mind back. So the moment we're experiencing now within our consciousness is based off of the previous moment. And that previous moment is based off the previous moment before that, all the while being conditioned by lots of phenomena. So this goes back all the way into our teens, all the way back to being a kid, back to being a small baby. So we can imagine our consciousness like a flowing, cause and effect, forward moving path. And so would that consciousness just suddenly come into existence from something disconnected from what it is? So this is where we have to use a little bit of logic, a little bit of the thinking mind. So this is where we'd only have a few options. Either consciousness is created by our mother and father, just to be clear, the body is definitely created by our mother and father, or the, uni the union of sperm and egg coming together. But consciousness is something a little bit different than the body, although it's trapped in it at the moment. So this consciousness, either it had to come from our mother and father, or it was created by some other entity, or it had a previous moment. So it wasn't born at the time we were born into this body, but came from another previous incarnation or way of being. So in Buddhism, we accept this third possibility. There's many reasons and logical analysis refuting the other two. I just not going to go into that today something we can explore on our own. And so the consciousness, based off of cause and effect, just didn't come out of nowhere. As we can see throughout our life, 
there's been each cause, cause producing effect, each effect producing another cause. So why would it just start at birth? Doesn't make sense. So here we start to come into a logical inference of past lives. And then because there's this cause and effect issue, where an effect creates a new cause, we also can posit that there's no beginning to time, as where was the first cause? A, a causeless cause, we could say. So if you are still mulling this over, and you don't, you don't have to necessarily accept this right now, but in order to recognize all sentient beings as our mother, this is the process for the preliminary for working with this. So we can just do it as a kind of hmm, just engaging the practice now. So in each of those lives, We've had many bodies, many different incarnations, and in the ones where we were born from an egg or a womb, we had a mother, we had a father. So here this is one of the more challenging parts of this meditation, but we can just take it in in any way we can at the moment, which is to just recognize Since we've had beginningless lives, we've had an infinite amount of mothers. Therefore, many of the beings we come into contact with, they would say all in a lot of Buddhist texts, have at one time been our mother. And if we reflect on the kindness of those beings, can start by reflecting on the kindness of the mother. Now this is tricky sometimes because some of us have not had a mother we can feel or we didn't feel kindness from necessarily. And in that case you're welcome to use your father or another figure, but even if we use a mother who wasn't so kind to us or neglected us or abused us, she still birthed us. She still gave us the life we have. And for those of you in the room who are actual mothers, you know the process intimately and directly of what it takes and the kindness and patience and perseverance and utter selflessness it takes. So, if we had healthy relationship, we can just reflect on that relationship with our mother or father, if not with, other, with another caring figure. Just reflecting on the fact of our mother birthing us as a very caring, kind thing. So we bring to mind all the times our mother showed up for us, was there for us, provided warmth, care, Just meditating that there's no other being we would get up for, act for, get so worked up about as our mother. There's also no other being that's been as kind to us as our mother. And since all beings at one time or another have been our mother, what we're developing here is a connection to all beings as being enormously, unreplaceably kind, something almost we can't repay. So here I like to reflect on my mother or you're welcome to reflect on another caring figure, just their body language, the way she held me, smiled at me. the memories I have of her going out of her way to drive me to school and drive me to friends' houses. 
really bringing an experience of our caring figure into reality right now as if they're in the room with us. So further, we can also start to see just the others in our life who have been kind to us, including, like we pointed out earlier, we wouldn't be alive without the care and unseen connection we have with so many beings. All the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the house we live in. And it's easy to say, well, they weren't doing it for me directly. But it doesn't matter, we're still benefiting from it. And so here, the result of meditating in this way is we're creating a sense of closeness and warmth to others. A warmth that is large and pervasive. And out of that, developing a wish to repay their kindness and gratitude for our life, our sustenance, our food, shelter, all of what we have. It wouldn't be possible without others. And so we can Send them our love, our care, our warmth. Maybe starting with our mother or caring figure. I like to meditate on communing with them in a kind of tunnel of light where we're sharing in this warmth and connection. Or perhaps you can use a phrase of loving kindness, like, may you be happy, may you be well. Just speaking it to them silently in your mind. As we commune in a loving and affectionate feeling, both with our, care, our mothers, fathers, caring figures, and also with all beings. Those we're developing gratitude towards, this close connection and warmth. So if you've managed to evoke a strong feeling, you can just rest your attention and focus in that feeling. Just letting the love and connection mature with this person or people you're focusing on. So we can exchange or move between very broad sense of beings, as if recognizing all of sentient beings as our mother, and their kindness triggers a closeness and warmth. And we want to send them our affection and love. Or you can get more specific and send that love to a specific caring figure or your mother or father in your life. Next, we're going to meditate on compassion, which is a little bit tougher. Now this relates back into our handshaking practice, which is just starting with bearing witness. So our bearing witness here 
is based off of what we talked about when we talked a little bit about the nature of samsara. So here, all beings we've imagined as our mother, the kindness they've given to us, what we wish to repay to them, right now they're suffering enormously. We can start with just those we know around us, the ups and downs they go through, the sicknesses, those who have passed, just the suffering we can see. And as we bear witness, we develop the wish, may they be free from that suffering. So we can even say that to them. If our mother has passed on, we could also wish to her wherever she is, may you be free from suffering. Or if we have a connection to a caring figure for us that's still alive, wishing them freedom from the suffering they're experiencing. And we're going to broaden this out. This is where normally when we meditate on renunciation mind, we go through the different realms of samsara, all the different kinds of rebirths we can have. This is quite exhaustive and it's also very painful and also brings up a lot of doubt sometimes as there are realms that we can't see and that are very triggering for us as well if we came from a Judeo-Christian background. But essentially it boils down to three lower realms where sentient beings can be born in due to varying karmic actions and three higher realms. In all the realms there's suffering but there's a lot more suffering in the three lower realms. So the one we can immediately relate to is one we can see, which is the animal realms. And if we've watched any nature TV, or had any experience with what animals actually go through, not just pets, house pets, it's incredible, incredibly painful and fearful life. Always on edge, either to prey on something or to be preyed upon. Big ones are always eating smaller ones. Humans come in and destroy their habitat. So they suffer from a lot of pain coming from being eaten and the elements. They also suffer from ignorance, anxieties. And just as we've pointed out, these beings have all been our mothers. So if we imagine our current mother, one of this life, Imagine if she was in the state of a sheep about to be slaughtered. How would you feel about that? How would we wish her free from having to experience the suffering of being slaughtered? So this seems far-fetched, but from this perspective, this is the actual case, the actual reality of things. And next we can move into, briefly, the other realms. We have what's called a hungry ghost realm of beings who we can't see, who are born with extremely big stomachs with a lot of hunger, but unable to find food. A lot of thirst, but unable to find water. When they manage to find something to eat, it either burns them or they can't swallow it. And they live on and on very long lives, suffering like this without dying. Incredible hunger and thirst, worse than anything you've seen in uh, uh, the world. 
These beings have all been our mothers. And the Buddha said these beings are way vaster than human beings. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 billion times more, even more, due to karmic actions that generated that rebirth or caused that rebirth. And they're not bad people, they're not bad beings, they just made mistakes. And so we wish them free from that suffering, just like we would wish our mother experiencing that, free from the suffering of hunger and thirst, not being able to die for hundreds and thousands of years, experiencing that hunger and thirst over and over. Similarly, in the worst of the lower realms, which is the, all the different types of hot and cold hells, So these are temporary states beings can be born into, experiencing unimaginable pain and suffering. So in all these ways, we just imagine that if these beings are our very mothers, just imagine it's like almost unbearable. We can't stand to see them suffering like this. We want them to be free of this suffering. We wish them free from that. And similarly, the sufferings in the human realm and another unseen realm, the God realms, where the suffering is more subtle, but it's there. So with this compassion, we develop a special intention, a personal responsibility. I'm going to liberate these beings. I'm going to help them towards their awakening. This is the purpose of my life. So this is taking personal responsibility based on them being our own mothers. Who else is going to help them if it's not the sons and daughters of the mother? So from this, we develop a full aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings based on these six points of cause and effect. So if you manage to develop a wish for awakening stronger in your emotions, in your mind, in your feeling body, just rest in that for a moment. This wish that I must attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. Just with unbearable compassion, seeing there's, there's no time to lose. And just rest in that aspiration. Again, this isn't a pleasant or a positive feeling. It just is what it is. Compassion is not necessarily a pleasant feeling because we have to bear witness to suffering. But this wish, even if we, for a split second, feel it stronger than ever, this is really like the most worthwhile thing we can do with our life. The amount of merit accumulated is humongous. All the Buddhas actually turn and bow down to people and those who develop this mind of bodhicitta just because it's so worthwhile. So just bask and rest and commune with this attitude of bodhicitta that I'm going to liberate all sentient beings. I, want, I wish to attain awakening. I will attain awakening for the benefit of all. But really we're emphasizing the service component of this. Service in the sense of helping others to awaken. And we just see at that point 
how limited we are in that. Therefore, we need to attain awakening. The main purpose is to help others awaken. So when you're ready, you can just come back to the body as we started. Just recognizing, taking note of anything that came up for you. It's quite a challenging practice. It also brings up a lot. Just take a few deep breaths as you come back into your body. Just let go of any tension from the practice momentarily. Okay. So thank, thank you all for your practice. Um, I have one more method to go over, uh, but I thought we'd just stop for a second and uh, we can discuss a little bit if you want. Um, I think there's a lot there, right? <laughs> it's, pretty, it's a pretty deep one. For me, that's, uh, I forgot how, because uh, I usually do the next one, I do the equalizing and exchanging ourselves for others, but that one's quite, quite tough. Were you guys able to evoke an experience from that? Yeah? Um, before we get into a discussion, I also want to point out the differences in these two. So the one we just did is a little bit more of an analytical approach. So it's good for uh, those of us who um, have a very strong think, like uh, analytical thinking kind of mind, and we t we're prone to that. This can be very good, because we can use those kind of habits um, that we've been gifted with. <laughs> um, but what we're trying to move into eventually is the feeling, developing that feeling, right? And letting that feeling become more and more uncontrived. The second approach, which I'm going to talk on in a minute after we discuss a little bit, of equalizing and exchanging our, ourselves for others, is a more intuitive approach. And it's more intuitive, which sounds sexier, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. But it's more intuitive in a way that, unless I talk about it, uh, we won't understand. Actually, you have to have a pretty good understanding of emptiness to practice the one I'm going to, the equalizing and exchanging self for others, the one I'm going to teach next. And so if we don't, it's better to work with the one I just did first, to w work with the, this seven points until you have more understanding of emptiness and you're able to meditate on emptiness uh, with a little bit more clarity. Because and I'll and I'll speak on why, but uh, that's some of the differences between them. Yeah. Maybe I should have said that after I talked about it, but whatever. <laughs> so how did that go? Anybody uh, have any questions or, you know, there's also a lot of religious belief within that, so that can be challenging for people too. So I just wanted to give some space for that. Yeah. I, you know, all of you are practicing Buddhists. I, I, I think almost all of you. So. Um, I'm not too worried about it, but this is definitely more advanced. Like you definitely have to have some knowledge of Buddhist philosophy and worldview to practice this. Otherwise, it just seems totally weird. You know, All beings, my mother. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> like the, the the mouse in my backyard is my mother. You know, there's no basis to understand that. Yeah? Yeah. No, that's really, thanks, thank you. I was, I was hoping that came up for somebody so we could talk about it. Um, so good, because that's the intended purpose of this that meditation, uh, is to bring up anxiety. And this is sort of a, um, a little known fact about Buddhist meditation that is not po in the popular view of Buddhist meditation. Most of the perspectives on when we're really working on the path to enlightenment, they're actually meant to disturb us. So like we meditate on death and impermanence, that's super, like, if you don't get anxiety after that, you're, you know, are you alive? You know what I mean? It's like super hard, you know, or we meditate on the hell realms, which is a very difficult meditation to do, very hard, right? And Tibetan Buddhism is kind of like, you know, it's also 
has a lot of um, difficulty for us because we have some uh, maybe maybe wounding there if we were uh, taught it too early. One of my friends had a premise that Westerners have a hard time in Eastern meditations on hells because we were taught hell realms as a way to punish us, like to try to control us, and we were taught it too early. Um, they do use it as fear mechanisms within Tibetan Buddhism, but there's that base of well-being, so it's much different, you know, for, for Tibetans, at least was. So, um, so the, that's the intended purpose, and that's why I would also say, I'll get to you the second part of what you're asking too, that's why I would say it's so important we have some base of healthy well-being. Now you guys are seeing why that's so important, why I started the day with that. Because if we don't have that, when all this anxiety comes, it can also trigger our own wounds and anxiety. Where then we don't know what to do with because we just end up being triggered, but then we don't move towards awakening, we move more towards our own wound, right? And, and we re-traumatize ourselves. So I think that's so key and important, and, and uh, I wish more lamas talked about that. Uh, maybe they will, the younger ones now. Then, now, your second part of it is that's the very point, is you get, we get worked up and we get, wow, I can't believe this, I really need to go in there and help. And that's the fuel for our path. Because what are we, what are we intending to mainly help them with, which is awakening. But we have no idea how to do that because we, we're totally deluded ourselves, right? And we're mired in our own suffering and stuck in it. So what it does is it fuels our path where we, then we work harder, we work on the cushion more, we, we show up for our practice, we don't miss it, we keep studying, and that becomes the fuel for that. And it also becomes those moments when we can act, we do, right? So this is not saying we then wait on the cushion and don't do anything, like, you know, like, someone's on fire and we're like, nope, I'm meditating, you know, <laughs> right? You go and put them out, right? So, so both of that, but um, we get smarter about it. Like, we get wiser about how to enact change in the world, right? As we awaken further. So, I mean, I was thinking of um, my mothers in, in different uh, realms, and, you know, I guess it was and thinking that I should have um, uh, used um, method A in this realm, method B in that realm, method C in that realm. But that just feels too, um, it just, it's splitting my, my self too, uh, too thin. Yeah. Um, Method A meaning like, um, like you were thinking of ways to help them, things well, like, like that? Or whatever. Yeah, like give them food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you. That's fine. And also, a way to grow aspiration bodhicitta further is we do imagine like we're going to do a taking and giving next. In that, you can like literally offer them in visualization like something to relieve their suffering, right? But um, we're do we have to know we're doing that. That's still a practice of aspiration because it's just visualization, right? But it does. Here's why I was emphasizing aspiration so much because. Like if we don't grow that aspiration, how do we then act? Like so many, so much, so much of the time we're so focused on. You're not saying this. I'm just adding to it, right? Adding to our conversation as a whole. We're so focused on action, but we don't cultivate the intentions and motivations and qualities of like the wisdom and uh, strong volition to act, like very strongly and without you know petering out. So if we want, if we don't want burnout, this is the way. You know, the Buddhist way of not, of compassion without burnout is, is practicing in this kind of way, and also with some sense of emptiness. So when we recognize, we let go of, ex of expectation. We let go of, oh, it's me, I've got to save the world. I think so many of us feel like the world is on our shoulders these days, you know? The next news story I'm going to hear is going to break my back, right? It's kind of like that. Really, really, really... Not the way from a Buddhist perspective, right? Because it's not sustainable. It's kind of like, it's what we call idiot compassion, yeah, unfortunately. So we have to grow this kind of connection of, do, of 
aspiration, uh, potential, what do you call it, act, but from a place of wisdom and letting go of expectation in certain ways. And that, that really comes out of these kinds of practices. That's why you can see like um, the qualities of like people like the Dalai Lama, they just didn't come out of nowhere. This is what he does every day, you know? What do you think? He didn't do like super high, he does tantric practice. <laughs> he does do that. But I think most of his sessions are spent on things like this, you know? It's quite beautiful. Milarepa, you know, has wonderful quotes of like, um, you know, I went, my, uh, uh, my main practice is not to be ashamed at the time of death. Things like that, you know? Really understanding like the qualities here. That's why I would focus so much on the preliminaries today. Yeah? Anybody else? Anything that came up? Otherwise, I'll continue on because we're, we're almost out of time. <laughs> I, I think also there's a, um, which you haven't mentioned in the last, you know, you started with, but I think gets brought in here as well, is a lot of our sense of action, um, we think of it as coming out of anger or uh, disappointment, or I've got to do this change because, and, and there's, uh, there's a lot of ego in it, a lot of this is what I believe and it's getting ruined, and there's, uh, often there's a lot of anger, and, uh, and I've got to change this, and th the motivation that Scott's talking about is, is much cleaner than that. And because it doesn't have all that dirt, its ability to continue through is much greater. So not only is it skillful means you're choosing, as opposed to angry means, the ability to follow it through is much greater because of the strength of the aspiration. So there are a whole bunch of qualities that come out of this that don't have to do with marching on Washington or writing your congressman, and much more to do with, and this is how I'm going to treat the people around me so, so that we can all move forward skillfully. Yeah, well said. And I'm going to write my Exa congressman. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, well said. Yeah. Um, so this next approach, um, I just wanted to give you guys, and you know, since it's just, um, we don't have a lot of time to go into everything, I'm kind of like giving you tastes, and then you can go and read more and study more on these approaches, and then integrating them into your practice, right? So this next approach is the um, equalizing, exchanging ourselves for others. And so we, it, it, there's different traditions on this, the way in the uh, Dugu Kensei put it was more like, First, recognizing all beings as your mother. So we kind of integrated one from the last one. Now, all of these approaches, by the way, come from the Kadampa tradition within Tibetan Buddhism. So they synthesized. So Atisha Dipankara, do you guys know who Atisha was? So he's a Atisha Dipankara, yeah. So Atisha, you know, uh, brought a lot of these uh, mind training techniques uh, from Mahayana, Indian Mahayana Buddhism. And then when he came to Tibet, they just became popularized within a tradition called the Kadampa tradition. Uh, uh, the Kadampa later becoming, like, getting synthesized a lot of it into the Galuk tradition. But the Kadampa, all traditions of Tibetan Buddhism adopt some of these techniques of the Kadampa tradition, which is like Lojong, right, mind training techniques, uh, Tonglen, that all comes from, from Atisha in the Kadampa tradition. So both of these are, uh, come from that. So Dukha Kensei Rinpoche, he said, I'm not sure what we'll do tonight, but he had, like, recognizing all sending beings as one's mother, and then you you practice Tonglen with that, right? Taking and giving. Here, the three steps are um, equalizing oneself with others, um, which is really looking at the disadvantages of the self-cherishing mind and looking at the advantages of cherishing others, right? Which is a little bit more nuanced and difficult. Then the second, which is exchanging oneself with others, so we meditate on, the, on, on sort of the actual exchange. Um, and this is recognizing that others' happiness is more important than our own due to an insight into the nature of identity. So this is what I was saying, why, why this intuitive approach requires some experience and knowledge of emptiness. 
Otherwise, it's really difficult. Otherwise, it's really difficult to prove why would I, why is someone more important than me? You see what I'm saying? It's really difficult to see, like, why would I want to exchange myself for another suffering? But when one sees there's no self, it's quite easy, right? That's why it's so important, and that's why this practice is a little more tricky, and they usually call it a practice more for people of higher aptitude, which means who have an experience of emptiness, right? And there's no higher or lower here. Whatever develops the qualities, develops the qualities. And then the third step is you practice taking and giving, right? So I thought we'd go through, and we'll mainly emphasize the Tonglen part here. And what I wanted to say, like I was saying earlier about Tonglen, is really here, this is when we're really doing it. You see the difference here between when Tonglen becomes a practice of uh, um, sort of just like um, trying to calm a situation within us versus like here we're actually trying to stir it up more to develop bodhicitta. Because the result is then whether we do the seven point exercise or we do Tonglen, the result is by the end, I want to achieve awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings, right? And so we use the Tonglen to make it much more personal. And so we really view, I really am taking on this person's suffering because we don't see a sense in holding on to a fixed identity, a fixed sense of self. So who is it that's taking it on? Who is it that's giving something? You see what I'm saying? So it really, this practice is quite special because it's like that coin I talked about earlier. It really does erode the sense of a fixed identity, which is the root of all of our suffering, that root of the tree I talked about earlier, right? that most subtlest type of suffering. So it's a very skillful technique because we both erode the self-cherishing, which is related to this nature of identity, which is causing our suffering anyways, and we develop bodhicitta at the same time. So it's like, so it's a very strong practice, yeah? Is that clear, mm -hmm. someone, yeah? The other day I was we were meditating with a friend who's dying. Mm -hmm. Scared. Yeah. And so I decided just to radiate love. <laughs> but it, but but then I thought, why am I so afraid? Is that sort of what you're about? Exactly. So that fear is the self not wanting to be annihilated. Right? But I so, knew, I sort of sensed that. Yeah. No, but what you're trying to do is extremely difficult. I just want to give you point that out and give you credit. Like and that experience of that fear, next time that happens to you. That's what you meditate on. The, that's what can, you meditate on the emptiness of. Yeah. You see, yeah. that's a really. That's actually um, a lot of practices uh, in Tibetan Buddhism are trying to arouse that experience to then challenge where is the self within that? Because it's like the self arises so strong. Normally, like you're just sitting here with me, like you know, I'm blah blah blahing all day long at you, and um, you know, do you feel like a really strong sense of self? Probably kind of not really, right? Sort of. Like there's something here, but it's kind of amorphous. But when someone screams in your face, you know, that sense of self, righteousness comes up, anger. Or, I want to get her sickness. Or that. But or I will. Maybe someday. I mean, something will happen someday. So it's five Yeah, and, and it's less the, um, uh, those are, some, like, it's less the semantics of it. You see what I'm saying? It's more like, of course. And that's important. Uh, then, like, so when that big strong sense of self comes out, that's when the real Tonglen can happen. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what I was talking about with our discussion earlier. This is what Tonglen's for. It's not for like, like, oh, let's, let's make the moment really blissful and like, you know, I'm not complaining to you. No, 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 you know, I'm not judging anyone in this room. Other people, right? Outside of this room. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, and our t teacher, Sognir he doesn't teach Tonglen. You know, the one time he taught it, he really went off about this. You know, about Tonglen kind of like misuse, being misused. He said, when your friend calls you at 3 a.m. to take them to the emergency room, and you just tell them you'll do Tonglen for them, you know, that's not Tonglen, you know? Take them to the emergency room, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But Tonglen, really, the purpose is to erode this sense of self and then simultaneously we're growing our loving kindness and compassion so it's such a powerful technique that's why i'm being quite harsh like not harsh but kind of strong today because i hate to see it get watered down because it does a disservice to all of you in the room or, or not in the room but anywhere else where the method in its full efficacy gets lost i mean seriously 
come on. Like, the amount of bullshit I hear about Tonglen these days, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, you know? And again, it's, So what you're saying is the point of Tonglen is exactly what Lynn felt, is to have that fear come in that strong and then have your muscle of no self awareness of your awareness of no self that muscle be strong enough to overcome it. not almost not quite no what what would happen at that point is you keep going and that very sense of self that arose really strongly that's where you take all the cancer right onto that you imagine as a black ball inside of you you take everything right there yeah and it's really hard that's when the opportunity i rarely got that i was in retreat alone it's easy to practice Tonglen, you know, because nothing strong comes up like that. You know what I'm saying? In those situations, really difficult to practice, and that's when it becomes real Tonglen practice. That's when it can have real effect on the mind. See, because our point is not to take the person's cancer. The point is to think we're taking the cancer. You see? And of course, I think there is some cause and effect, and it can benefit people. People have been healed, but people focus on that aspect way too much, and they get caught up in this thing because we're not caught up enough in aspiration. We want to do, 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 and be a do-gooder, you know? Bodhisattva is not like benevolent being always like, you know, smiling and, you know, happy and stuff like that. Really, it could be someone who beats the shit out of someone. That could also be a bodhisattva. I'm sorry to say, we were talking about crazy wisdom earlier, you know? Could be. Like, to save someone else or to prevent that person from doing something that would really create karma for them, that would be awful. You never know, you know. But I'm talking about, that takes a bodhisattva with very high wisdom and realization. For us, it's Tonglen. <laughs> so yeah, that's really Tonglen. Wonderful. See, I, I'm so lazy, honestly. Like, I'm, I'm, I rarely have those kinds of experiences because I'm so selfish, you know. And I've manipulated myself out of these situations through overthinking and practicing in weird ways, you know? So I feel like I want that, you know? Like, I want that experience. <laughs> Maybe I should go sit with people who are dying more. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty hardcore, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not a, uh, takes some super courage. But also, of course, like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to always be super hardcore situation. You know, because it's a practice, we're training in it. So we train in it every day. And then sometimes it's more strong, sometimes it's not. I'm not, I don't want to discourage you from doing it and like, oh, I'm like and judging yourself too, like, oh, I'm not doing Tonglen if it's not how Scott said. That's not true either, because it's also a practice. I'm just pointing out like when the, 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 the sense of self comes very strong, that's when you imagine like a black ball in, inside your heart and then you take everything there. And then there's different ways you can practice like, Transforming that where that dissolves into white light at the end if it feels more comfortable There's many ways to do like that But if but the best is when that sense of self dissolves and you experience it dissolving Then you have to have an experience of emptiness. It's better than any new age visualization you do <laughs> Anyway, should we practice? You gonna say something? Yeah All right, we'll do a quick one you gotta go, thank you, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we'll just settle in a, our posture again. It's a lot today, so just take a moment just to relax. It's also quite strong things we're talking about, intense. So just plug into your sense of a little bit of groundedness in the body before we start here. So we'll start by just thinking briefly about the disadvantages of the self-cherishing mind and then looking briefly at the advantages of cherishing others. So we have to check, and this takes time, just briefly introducing it today. So we have to think, when 
did this mind that cherishes ourselves more than others, when did this attitude or state of mind, has it actually like helped us? Have we become a happier person because of it? I think we just go right down to it. Just think. Every time we put ourselves ahead of someone else or put our own need at the expense of another's, even very small ones, does this make us a more kind, loving, happy person? Not even talking just about like what we're offering others. We can just forget that for now. But how do we feel after we do something like that? Do we feel good inside? Do we feel bad? And further, from a Buddhist perspective, all of our problems and suffering comes from taking refuge in this self-cherishing mind, the attitude that our needs are more important than others. When we look further, flipping it around, just think of the moments when you did give up your own need for another. Those moments when you challenged the belief that you're more important than another. What happened with that? I'm not talking now, I'm talking in that moment. My guess is there's more ease, less suffering in the experience. As far as from an emotional perspective, there might have been more physical suffering. When we genuinely did it, not out of spite, not out of like trying to be a goody-goody person, not out of because someone told us to or because it's the, we want to look like a good Buddhist. Really just genuinely from our heart. How did that feel? And so we can start to see also that the only reason we put our needs ahead of others is because they feel like there's a self or an identity here that is more important than others. But others feel the same thing. So whoever's sitting next to you in the room their happiness is also important to them. So why is our happiness more important? Just because we're not in their body? Or because we don't experience what they experience? So it really, it sounds silly, but when you think about it logically, it, it actually doesn't make sense. It only makes sense from the perspective of the self-cherishing mind. But others' needs are just as important as ours, if not more important. And here again, this is based off of, first, a healthy sense of well-being within us. We're not also putting ourselves as a doormat. It's very subtle here. This is why it's really important also to understand the nature of self. That that thing, that identity we call, or we label ourselves by our name, or who we feel we are, or what we think we are, when we search for that, we actually can't find it anywhere. We can point at our body, but when we look throughout the body, where is this sense of an autonomous, independent self? Is it in somewhere in an organ somewhere, buried deep in our blood? Is it in a certain thought or emotion? Maybe it's in our consciousness, but which moment of consciousness? So we have to investigate in this kind of way when we have more time. So we begin to recognize that others' happiness is more important. As there's many others, there's just one I or one self. So based on this, we can begin to practice 
taking and giving, or Tonglen. We can start with different figures, but generally we start with someone who we're close to. And we imagine based off this practice of cherishing another more than ourselves, we imagine giving them everything we have in the form of white light, if you'd wish. Really, especially those things we cherish. There's that computer we're attached to or set of books or certain article of clothing. Maybe our partner or a pet. We just send that energy to them wishing them everything. So with this sense of warmth and love, we just share everything openly. And we imagine in return, taking all of their pain, suffering, cancer, sickness, whatever ails them, emotionally, physically, even all of their negative karma, what would propel them into rebirths as animals, we take all of that. Especially we take all of it onto this sense of self. If we can feel it in our chest or in our head behind our eyes, or in this way, as she pointed out earlier, it's a sense of fear that starts to come up. Take it on to that one behind the fear that feels the fear. We imagine this as black light or black soot, like tar, just entering this. And as it enters, you can either let it completely destroy the self-cherishing mind, the sense of an autonomous self, or you can imagine that the sense of autonomous self visualized as a black ball in our heart completely dissolves. So we can mount this on the breath if we like. So on the in-breath, taking all of their sickness, negative karma, challenges, negative emotions, in the form of black smoke, hitting our self-cherishing in this kind of way, hitting our sense of a fixed self. Again, I want to point out, this is not hitting our worth. We already concluded we're deeply worthy, recognizing our Buddha nature. So this is not undermining that. That's why it's so important to have a sense of well-being before doing this practice. It's just hitting at this sense of an autonomous, independent self sense that the I, or meanness, is something we can find and that exists inherently. So we inhale on the breath and on the exhale, we send all of our goodness, love, warmth, possessions, positive karma, practice, everything towards this person. Right now we're practicing with someone we're close to, someone it's easy to do this with. Just notice what comes up in you each time. Notice the challenge of this or the freedom in this. Whatever's coming up right now. When you have more time on your own, you're welcome to start to invite different kinds of figures in your life. Other close ones, family, friends, strangers, those you dislike. And we also can eventually imagine all beings. So you go between a personal relationship and a more universal, just alternating back and forth. And this isn't punishment, I want to be really clear. We don't use Tonglen as punishment, that we're not worthy or we're a bad person. 
who are you we're using it to grow our bodhicitta our awakening mind and awakening mind especially in connection with ultimate bodhicitta which is recognizing this identity we feel as fixed real independent isn't there and as we challenge it it will dissolve So as you close the practice, you can just imagine whether it feels direct or not, at least we do it in the imagination, that all of the suffering, negative karma, sickness we took on completely dissolves into a clear ball of light. And this begins to expand throughout our body, filling our body filling the person in front of us or people. And it's a quality of spaciousness, quality free from a fixed identity. All negativities dissolving into shunyata, recognized at their true essence, which is essenceless and illusory. We just rest in that spaciousness. So this can be contrived or uncontrived depending on where we're at with our practice. We also rest in that quality of loving kindness and compassion we developed while doing the taking and giving with this person. We rest in that awakening mind where ultimate bodhicitta fuses with relative bodhicitta with the aspiration to bring them to enlightenment for the benefit, sorry, to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. Okay. <laughs> so thank you. So uh, went a little bit more hardcore than I thought I would today, but that's just what happened. So I uh, hope it wasn't too much. Um, I think we'll just do a short dedication and um, just close out with some things. Um, since we didn't have too much time to go, you know, we kind of, it got a little bit crowded there at the end with the methods. I really encourage you to get a book by Geshitashi. It's called, um, I think it's just called The Awakening Mind. Uh, he has a series on called The Foundations of Buddhist Thought, which is really good. Um, that's a wonderful book. Uh, one by uh, uh, one of my favorite, uh, Dilgo Kensei ha also has some books on Lojong, on mind training, that are really wonderful. Of course, Pema Chodron, you all mentioned, she has wonderful books on it too. Yeah, and just keep going. And as you can see, these are practices. So, you know, sometimes we just fake it till we make it too. It's not like you're always gonna feel some huge thing, right? So fake it too, like we have to keep going. What I was aiming at was sort of the authentic, where we're trying to move with the practice. It doesn't mean we're there right now, just to point that out. And I also want to say, wherever you're at with it in your access point, just do that, you know? It's really important to just keep going and practice. And, you know, um, it's my job to sort of like say, this is the bar we're aiming for. But that's just it. We don't have to judge ourselves wherever we're at in relation to that bar. I just really want to point that out. And you guys all sound awesome. Based off your questions and what, what's going on, it sounds like your practice is going really well. So just keep going. You know, I'm, I'm just stoked. And Bodhicitta is really... Uh, there's nothing like it. It's the, most, it's the most important thing we'll develop in our life. There's nothing more important than that. And if, if you can even dedicate 10 minutes a day to formally developing it, I mean, that's so amazing. So I really, really, really encourage you to develop it as much as you can. And really authentically in this way we talked about today, yeah? So um, we'll just do, a, I'll recite a few dedications in Tibetan and then I'll just guide us through a dedication, a brief one. I know it's uh, late. Uh, what page am I? Okay. Sonam di tamche zepani tomne ne pedranam pamche ne kega nachi balam chupai 
By this merit, may omniscience be attained, and may the adversary clashes be conquered. From the ocean of samsara, with the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, may all sentient beings be freed. So in our heart now, just like we just did Tonglen, we're going to, first of all, along with that verse, just dedicate all the merit to awakening for the benefit of others. This is just like sealing all the work we did today. You guys worked pretty hard, listening, contemplating, and meditating. And then we seal that by meditating on the three spheres, the lack of an inherently true self that created the merit, an action that is autonomous and independent of creating the merit, and the merit itself, all being free of any kind of fixed true nature, instead interdependent, We meditate on emptiness in this way. And then we share our merit with all sentient beings. So we can imagine this merit as a pure light of, sorry, a pure ball of light in the centers of our heart, like clear, limpid, vivid, very clear light. And this light begins to expand as our dedication expands exiting our bodies in all directions, completely filling the room as we share our merit with each other, not holding on to even one bit of it, wishing awakening as the merit gets shared. So each person this light touches is filled with the qualities of awakening. This goes out into the town of Grafton, filling the entire town, filling the surrounding towns growing bigger and bigger, filling Vermont, filling the Northeast, into the ocean, into the rest of the United States, Canada, maybe Canada, they're nice to us, <laughs> Mexico, completely filling, touching every sentient being, filling them, reducing eliminating their suffering and bringing all the qualities of awakening. Until this completely fills the world and expands, filling the entire universe. Infinite. Inexhaustible. And so we dedicate that, may this merit become inexhaustible until enlightenment. So thank you so much. And it's really a pleasure to Again, do this. Like, uh, I think I'm the one who benefits the most. So it's really, really amazing. Yeah. I don't know. It's amazing. So thank you. And you guys are awesome. And keep going. Yeah. <laughs>